So this evening we want to um, share some reflections, both of us together, on the practices of chanting and bowing and the particular practice that we're going to start doing from tomorrow morning and to share a little bit about um, why, we, why we do these, what the benefit might be and our own um, experience of doing them. And so the first thing I'm going to say a little bit about and then Sumedha will chime in too is about the practice of chanting and in the tradition that we, cha- we trained in, often um, a period of formal practice or a meditation period, we used to have an hour of meditation at the beginning of each day and an hour of meditation at the end of each day, approximately, most days. And they would usually begin and end with five or ten minutes of chanting, sometimes more. And... I find that something that's actually very helpful for settling the body and the mind into meditation. When I do that again now, actually, there's a degree of that kind of effort of gathering oneself and settling that we've been applying ourselves to to today that happens a little bit more smoothly, a little bit more easily, a little bit more effortlessly. So that's just doing a little bit of chanting at the beginning and end of each practice or of some periods of formal practice. And of course, in different Buddhist traditions and in different spiritual traditions all over the world, the practice of chanting is used, sometimes a little bit of chanting, sometimes it's more or less the whole practice. So even within some Buddhist traditions, you know, you will sit and chant for an hour instead of sitting in silence for an hour. Um, And maybe you've done kirtan from the um, Hindu tradition or you've practiced in Buddhist traditions where you chant a mantra, hold a mantra for an hour or so. And of course, in the Christian traditions and other spiritual traditions also, there's a a rich uh, tradition of music and of um, using the voice as a a kind of meditative and also... um, devotional, we'll we'll talk about this idea of devotion, devotional practice. And chanting is used, it's been used in the Buddhist tradition to actually transmit the teachings. So the teachings were transmitted orally for the first few centuries of their existence. There was no writing in that culture. Um, And they were probably sung to each other or recited in a kind of um, yeah, musical chanting way. A lot of them are written um, or composed metrically. Lots of verse teachings. So it's a way of memorizing texts or me- thoughts and ideas, a way of transmitting them and a way of celebrating them. And when you repeat something over and over again, it kind of percolates in your system in a certain way. It's a way of absorbing something and contemplating it over and over again. Um, and when we, when we sound the voice, when we chant, we also set up a resonance in the body that has an effect on our, you know, on our, a somatic effect on our nervous system. Um, even you can just see, you, know, you also seem to derive, or many of you seem to derive a lot of pleasure from making a noise when we were doing the Qigong. <laughs> 
And in Qigong, there's a, there's a rich tradition of using sound as healing, that we, we shift energy in the body by creating a vibration from the inside out. And there's a whole, whole practices around healing sounds. And in the Indian the Ayurvedic tradition, you know, sound and healing are, are used together. And the ancient Greek philosophers also pointed to the healing properties of harmonious sound. And people like um, Pythagoras and Plato talked about harmony um, as a kind of parallel for the, the soul in harmony. So there's a way that chanting has a kind of purification effect on the nervous system, or even sounding our voice, humming the voice. Now, having said this, I, I personally, I have a lifelong um, trauma from having failed my audition for my school choir at the age of 10. So I'm not someone, and then, and then subsequently really struggled with the singing component of any kind of music thing that I engaged with. So uh, I want to say that we're not going to be setting a high bar for <laughs> the chanting that we, we're going to offer. And the chants that we offer are, by and large, pretty simple. Um, the one that's more complicated, we actually have a soundtrack that we'll play along with so we don't have to carry it ourselves. And um, that it's not about having to have a good singing voice to... Uh, be able to do this. So a, a lot of the chants that we did in our monastic tradition, you do them uh, in unison, and we're not going to be doing harmonizing here unless we have some very skilled singers and we get a bit nifty at the end of it. <laughs> but um, And they mostly stay on very few notes and so on. And it really is, you know, from having been someone who who had this sense of, I can't you know, make a decent sound with my voice. Um, in the process of doing these chants in the monastery, you really learn to listen to each other. And it's a lot about chanting together and uh, the kind of unification of our voices. And when we, listening in and of itself is a practice. And it's a way of, uh, as we have mentioned and we'll speak more about of resting into something offering ourselves into something larger than us resting into something bigger and an art to adapt and blend with other people um, I heard a, a podcast recently from um, uh, there's a, a series of podcasts called Sideways by somebody called Matthew Syed and there was one called Sweet Harmony and one of the things that it said in this podcast is that there's powerful evidence that singing together can build empathy and mutual understanding. And that music's been a critical element of um, the glue that binds cultures and societies together since ancient times. And it connects us and is enjoyable and it contributes to mental well-being. Yeah. And it's another way, making a noise together, just as we did in the Qigong practice, is, is another way of being in community that is not about, um, you know, exchanging ideas or thoughts with one another or opining about things. Or, uh, there's so much connection in our world without community or, you know, exchange of 
exchange of information, but a loss of a sense of community. So this is also offered as something that we can kind of give ourselves to together. And to give ourselves to it as much as we feel comfortable with, acknowledging that that's going to be different for uh, each of us. And uh, the invitation is to participate in, in these things to the degree that you feel comfortable. So you can just sit and listen. If it really is triggering for you or you, if there's some other reason that you want to opt out of some of the bits of chanting, you know, that's okay too. You know, please titrate your participation. But I really invite you to playfully you know, join in and see what you can discover from doing all this together. Do you want to add anything about ch the chanting? Uh, mm -hmm. I would just say that uh, it, it's a very deep part of the brain. So um, one time I was doing care work with somebody who had very, very severe Alzheimer's to the point that she would like eat raw onions out of the fridge and, you know, follow me around all the time and kind of all the rest of it. And she, um, so she was very lost in her daily life. And she, but she was an ex-concert pianist for the London Philharmonic. And she would get on her grand piano and she could pray, play these wonderful, um, kind of sonatas, you know, and all this stuff that was so deeply archived in her being. And it was her, the only moment that gave her peace, actually. So it was the only moment in her day when she wasn't anguished and agitated and on to the next thing, you know. So I would say it was like, it really, um, I mean, I'd had my own experience in the monastery also learning that how, uh, how settling and how aligning the sense of chanting could be but here was this woman who you know she was not overtly into any sort of spiritual practice or and it just really it really brought her home actually so it's obviously a very deeply rooted part of our being so and for me these chants have also been a way of like really um a bit like we were talking about with mantra they're like a, a doorways into different energies so some of the chants are like uh, they're touching on particular uh, images or energies or figures or teachings and it's like somehow the the um, the way of chanting them is not going through my intellectual brain <laughs> that that go that it somehow bypasses that and so they come in on a very different level and sometimes actually when I'm recollecting teachings that feel important to me what comes first is the chant so we used to um like do blessing chants often in the monastery or some of the the teaching chants and often i can't you know if i try and think about it i can't remember them like that but then it will come back with the rhythm and the, the movement and so it, it it just is a very different way of accessing into our being as you're saying so yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so the, the, um, the chants that we're going to, to share with you, there's the chanting sheet at the back of the room and there are a few different chant, chants on that and some of them are mantras. Mantras, as Sumedha says, it's a, they can be doorways, openings into uh, another sense of being or into a different kind of vibration within ourselves. And mantra basically means something that protects the mind. And we also mentioned the, you know, the mantra buddho when you're doing walking meditation that actually is a way of kind of protecting the mind from wandering off and getting lost in all kinds of unhelpful um, grooves that it might flow down. And the mantras that we'll do on, and the, the chants that we'll do are either in Pali, which is the language of the early Buddhist teachings and Pali is a kind of special language in that it's only ever been used for the transmission of the Dharma you know, whereas mo most languages are used for all kinds of other purposes as well uh, but Pali is it's only used for that and it's as close as we know we can get to the actual speech that the Buddha used so if you think about that it's sort of a way of connecting with that lineage of ancestors and that can be a really nice thought to hold and then some of the other ones come from the Chinese tradition and we'll say a bit more about that uh, later yeah. hmm. Hmm. you want to say something about the bowing? bowing yeah so bowing <laughs> <laughs> you'll notice we've been doing a bit of bowing um, and again, it was very uh, much part of the monastic tradition we were in. It was like basically every time you entered and left a room, if there was a shrine in it, you bowed. And bow last thing at night before going to sleep. Not that any of this was imposed. It was just a... There was a... Convention. A convention and, and an encouragement to see, really, uh, what that did. And for me, it's been an extremely helpful practice. Um, so when I was thinking about how to talk, to the, talk about this, uh, this line from Rabindranath Tagore came into my mind, where he says something like, the thin stream of life that runs through my veins, runs through the world and dances in rhythmic measure. And for me, this, this practice of bowing is about leaning into this sense of we're part of something bigger. So, as Jaya was also saying about the chanting. <clears throat> so, really a sense of community and a sense of coming out of uh, being, uh, being enclosed in my own being, let's say. So... Um, kind of having explored this in my practice, I've realized that quite a lot of the sense of additional suffering that can arise sometimes <laughs> in myself comes from a sense of being isolated or cut off or somehow um, contracted inwards. And the act of bowing is like a physical um, draw, uh, laying down of that somehow. So it can be interpreted and understood and experienced in all sorts of ways and again it's something to try so none of this is a, a right or a wrong or a dogma or a you know there's no there's no um, 
injunction to do any of this. Um, but for me personally, the sense of um, being willing to bow, being willing to offer down uh, whatever it is that I'm holding and being willing to receive maybe from a bigger universe what may, may wish to come is like a really beautiful movement. And so there's something about with chanting, we're using our voice to open our being, to share, to receive. And with bowing, we're doing this physically. It's like we're using our, our physicality, our body. Um, and of course, like any, it can become just a ritual. It can be like, okay, I come in the room, boom, 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 you know. <laughs> it's like, well, you might as well not do it, you know, in that way, if it's just, if it's just becoming ritualistic. Or the opposite can happen. So there was once a, a monk who, uh, he's died now. So he was the senior monk and we were in the monastery and there was this training to follow the senior monk, you know. And so it was the end of a evidently long sitting. So he goes to bow and he fell asleep <laughs> with his head on the floor. So everybody stays down, you know. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> so you can have all sorts of things going on around this. And the idea is really to stay present and to feel one's heart and to feel that offering down the support of the earth. Um, uh, and it's a giving and receiving in the same moment. So like when I bow to the, when I come in, I bow to the Buddha as like uh, the historical Buddha and also that principle of awakeness. And as I bow to that, it's like uh, a wishing to connect with that energy outside and inside. And similarly with Kuan Yin, the, the energy of compassion, the um, the energy of listening. So we'll say more about that. But this bowing is really not about some authority. It's about a relationship and a connection. <clears throat> and so in doing that, I, I often feel a softening and a holding. Um, And I realize that in bowing too, it's like we can be listening. So I found another quote from um, John O'Donoghue, who I quoted yesterday, this Irish philosopher poet, <coughs> who had a very beautiful sense of, um, it's a very Celtic sense of being part of the elements, being part of the earth and that we receive very much from that and we can offer, so offer ourselves back into it. And I thought this is a good example of how maybe even if we don't have a devotional sense, often we're actually leaning into certain qualities, which is that devotion, it is that bowing down. We're just not framing it as that. So he says, for instance, let us thank the earth that offers ground for home, and holds our feet firm to walk in space open to infinite galaxies. Let us salute the silence of certainty of and the, uh, let us salute the silence and certainty of mountains, their sublime stillness. So how many of us just go into nature and like, because we want to feel the forests, we want to feel the mountains and we learn from that, don't we? So that's a bowing into 
hands are bowing into. And so this movement of bowing, we're doing it very physically here. And for some people that seem more e- may seem more easy, may seem le- less easy, but it's good to try and connect it with whatever it is we may be doing already uh, in our lives, where we're learning to lean into certain qualities and open ourselves to them to learn. <coughs> And so there's, a, there's an attitude of, uh, of in bowing uh, of listening for me, which then connects with this, the, the quality of Kuan Yin. But before I say more, Jaya, do you want to? Um, on bowing. On bowing. On bowing, yeah. yeah. Um, really, just to add, we'll, we'll, we'll give you some options for the specifics of how to bow tomorrow so don't worry about all that it's just more the idea of of the gesture of bowing and and know that we you know there are going to be different ways of bowing that feel appropriate and comfortable to different bodies and you know simply to put one's hands palms together in front of the heart is a very powerful gesture just for many kind of physiological reasons also a very beautiful and powerful gesture and to bow the head and all the way to going right down on the floor with the head on the ground. Um, You know, these are all options and there's no kind of hierarchy of doing it better. It's like what expresses something in a way that feels appropriate to you and to to your body. So we'll, we'll look at that. And really to have the sense of, yeah, it, it can feel like bowing is about kind of disempowerment, self-disempowerment sometimes if we, if we look at it through the wrong angle. But actually this is about, as Sumedha says, leaning into something, honouring something in ourselves, honouring what's worthy of honour. This is the, the idea behind these kinds of um, ways of acting that we that we use in our practice. Um, and that some of us, also we sort of want to acknowledge that we all have a different history of relationship to, you know, religious rituals and practices. And to really acknowledge that we've been touched, sometimes wounded in different ways in the past by um, forms and rituals. And if that's the case for you to, again, just be be kind of gentle with yourself about how you approach this. And as I said yesterday, this isn't about trying to make you into a signed-up Buddhist. It's just about playfully experimenting with some of these possibilities and then seeing whether there's anything in it that you, that you want to kind of absorb for yourself later. But we, we really wanted to offer this as an opportunity to, to experiment with these things because we find them really enjoyable actually is the bottom line (laughs) and so why not share them (laughs) thank you so yeah so i guess that's why we call this the the practice of the heart because both these these things feel very hearty for us so and it's there also as jaya was saying with the chanting and and we were just saying with the bowing they somehow uh they touch different circuits of our being, so we're not necessarily going through the thinking mind. 
Um, and it's not to demonise the thinking mind either. That has a really valuable uh, role sometimes. <clears throat> but it's good to nourish ourselves sometimes in, in the many ways that we can. So... Um, So, yeah, chanting as relating to community and that deeper connection and bowing as coming to that. And then the, the, the chanting and bowing that we'll do tomorrow morning, you'll see, is quite... Uh, uh, how to say it? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a complete thing. So there's a, there's a chant that goes, there's a chant, there's music, and there's bowing that goes simultaneously. And so half of the room will be bowing at one time, and the other half chanting, and then that down, and then up. So it's very coordinated. Um, what did that, what did Faith call it? She called it Candlewick Green. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if anyone's of a generation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we'll be doing that chant for those who wish to. And um, the, the mantra that is done in that chant is the, the mantra of Kuan Yin, Bodhisattva, who is here. So I just wanted to say a little bit about her. Um, so uh, she manifests in, in male and female versions. So there's Avalokiteshvara as the male and Kuan Yin as the female. And she's from the Chinese tradition. Um, and so uh, Jaya and I have come to this practice via Tanisra and Kitisaro, who some of you probably know. Um, <coughs> and they came to it via Master Hua uh, in California in the city of 10,000 Buddhas. Um, and he, he actually invited Kitisaro to unite the lineages of Mahayana and Theravada. And so they, they've had a very powerful transmission. Um, and they transmit it very powerfully. <coughs> so Kuan Yin Bodhisattva is, really connects with this quality of listening that we've been talking about in the meditation. And I was just referring to it in the bowing and Jaya was referring to it in the chanting. So this quality of the listening and responsive heart. So sometimes also uh, she, he is pictured with a thousand hands and a thousand eyes. Uh, to uh, as a as an image of that capacity for our heart to listen and to respond in the world, and they're also referred to as she who hears the sounds of the world. So it's a very listening quality, and as we're chanting and bowing, that it's like we can be evoking that quality within ourselves. So we're making a conscious space, a ritual around opening to this quality, inviting contact with it and honouring it. <clears throat> and there's some very beautiful teaching around uh, Kuan Yin's method, which is called returning the hearing, which can sound a bit strange, but it's really about this coming back to uh, awareness. So... Uh, there's some very te beautiful teaching around that in the Shurangama Sutra, for those of you who are interested. But it's almost like it's this very, I love working with sound, and it's this very direct reminder when we, when we hear a sound 
or we're engaged in something and maybe something feels very overwhelming, instead of just being caught in the, the words or the, the, we're returning the hearing, we're coming back to a bigger sea of awareness which can hold and respond to what is being heard. So it's a very, very profound uh, practice. So it's kind of nice to be in touch with it, with some bowing, <laughs> some chanting. Um, so do you want to add, Jaya? Yeah, maybe just to, to say a little bit, um, a few more things about Ma- So Master Hua was a very um, well-respected uh, Chinese Chan master. Chan is uh, the Chinese for Zen, so the whole Japanese tradition of Zen came out of Chan in, in China. Um, which came from India to Tibet. So there's this, this way in which, you know, the Dharma started in India with the Buddha, but it spread as this big diaspora where it spread south to Sri Lanka and into Southeast Asia and then into Tibet and from Tibet to China and China to Japan and Korea. And then in the 20th century, it kind of spread from all those places into Europe and the United States and things. And so like all of us, I know many of you have, practiced in other Buddhist traditions and things. And we, we're in this kind of funny situation now, or funny and also privileged situation, where we have access to all these different streams of input, which can be both confusing, so it's really valuable to develop some kind of inner compass for what's the essence of the practice we're doing. You know, we've spoken about the cultivation of wisdom and compassion. But we also have all these different um, skillful means or tools available in our toolbox. And we don't want to just sort of grab at them with a sense of cultural appropriation, uh, but um, we can pick them up with you know, care and respect. And the way that um, this particular practice has come, come to us through these teachers, Kitty, Sara and Tanisara, they were also monk, monk and nun in the the same tradition as us, and then learned this practice from, um, from this Chinese master in, in uh, California, um, who had, he was, was very respected in China, and then when the communists took over in China, you know, he had to, to flee to the, to the US. Um, so uh, to me, it, it, it's uh, about the spirit in which we pick these things up, you know, that uh, we do that with respect and appreciation and gratitude for where they've come from. Um, and the, the Chinese mantra that we use, it, it goes namo, which is the same word you have in, uh, you know, when you do kirtan and things. And namo is something like homage or reverence. And Kitty Saro, our teacher, he, he likes to interpret it as, I return my life. And Sumeda mentioned about um, returning the listening. It's like, I offer, my, I offer myself into, I lean into, I, uh, I go for support to also, in a sense. Namo, Kwan Shi Yin Bu Sa. One is to listen or pay attention to or care for in Chinese. Shi is the world, yin is the sound. So the sounds of the world, listen or care for the sounds of the world. 
and Busa is the transliteration of Bodhisattva. And Bodhisattva is a being, an archetypal being in the Buddhist tradition who's, who's determined to wake up for the welfare of all beings. Um, so traditionally, it, you know, it comes out of this argument between the, the Theravada and the Mahayana systems about whether awakening is a selfish project just for ourselves or whether it's actually for the benefit of all beings, which is a little bit of a you know, doctrinal um, red herring, I would say, because <laughs> if we're waking up, it's surely for the benefit of all beings. And this motivation, you know, to do, what, do good in the world and do the best for all and to abandon self-centeredness, is a, the abandoning of self-centeredness is essential to this project of awakening. So, so again, many of us, even though we might have come out of what's called the Theravadan tradition, this ideal of the Bodhisattva, the ideal of someone who's practicing for the liberation of all beings and for the welfare of all beings is very resonant and very important. So that's kind of what a Bodhisattva is. So we're all Bodhisattvas here, I think, one way or another. Um, but Kuan Yin is this very beautiful, powerful archetype of that energy.